I'm Adrian Sykes. Welcome to Did You Know, the podcast dedicated to telling the stories of the executives of colour who have led the way in the UK music business. In this episode, we talk to David Grant, MBE, one of the trailblazers in the UK music industry. In part one of our conversation with David, we discuss his entry into the music business and his time as an artist. But as always, we started by asking David why he chose the music industry. I think that actually when I was a kid, um, I used to jump on the sofa and pick up a broom and put on one of my mum's wigs and pretend to be in a group performing. And what I didn't know was, I thought every kid did this and lots of kids do, but I would memorise every single song that was in the top 10 in any week and memorise every single word. And I'd find it really easy. And I'd be singing constantly. Um, And I'd be singing so much that I wouldn't know I was singing. So I was just connected to singing. What I was not inclined to believe at any point was that I could make a living out of it. It was the thing I most wanted to do. I used to be in groups. I started a group in my primary school. I started a group in my secondary school. My cousins had a group and I was invited to be in it. It was a vocal group. That's where I learned about harmony. Then I joined a group where there were musicians and I started playing piano. And then I realized something. Actually, you know, it was almost a process of elimination. I realized that I was lugging a piano up the stairs and there was a better pianist in the band. So what was the point in me playing piano? I was, had a guitar around my neck and I was a horrible guitarist. But the point was, I didn't want anything between me and an audience. I didn't want to be the guy standing at the back. Even if the audience was only 30 people, I wanted to be the fool out the front with the microphone. And it was it wasn't even a conscious thing, really. It wasn't that I wrote down in a diary, this is my plan. It's just... I followed my inclination. My inclination was always to perform. But working against that, there was the thing that I think every immigrant child is told or every child of immigrants, which is A, you have to work twice as hard. Certainly when I was a kid, you had to work twice as hard as white people to be as successful and B, get yourself a sensible job. When I was in my sixth form at school, my upper six, I did the school play. The person who directed it was the head of English and a friend of his was a lecturer at RADA, the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts. My mum um, had gone to Jamaica for a trip. I came home to my gran and I said, gran, the school play went really well. There's a guy there from RADA who said, we don't have very many black students. In fact, I, I don't even know if they had any at that point. Would you audition for RADA? I'll tell you what you need to do to prepare an audition. Your teacher will go through it with you. I can guarantee you with your talent, there's every chance you'll be accepted. I mean, this was, this was the 70s, right? The late 70s. So I said to my gran, that's what the man said, gran. And she said, so what is RADA? <laughs> and I said, It stands for the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts, Gran. It's the top drama school in the country. And she went, Rada? I would Rada, you'll get yourself a proper job. (laughs) So as far as like my growing up, that was an absolutely true story. As far as my growing up was concerned, it's like music 
acting, entertainment, that wasn't a proper job. It wasn't for people like us. People like us, that phrase was constantly, people like us don't do things like that. People like us don't have a chance. And so I think like every other black person of my vintage or even younger who went into the music business, we did it by pushing through. We did it by taking every single little opportunity and supersizing it. And we did it just by perseverance. And when I look at people like yourself, like, like Danny D, like, you know, like, oh, my, my, my and your mentor Erskine Thompson, I see people who through perseverance have come through, not through a silver spoon. There's no golden bullet. It's just hard, bloody minded perseverance and saying, this is what I want to do. It's what I've got to do. So let's go back to David Grant wearing a wig, dancing on the sofa, singing into a broom. <laughs> what are those songs that kind of fueled that ambition and that kind of gave you that thing about that love of music and that real desire to be an artist? I just loved music. I loved music. I was obsessed with music. You know, there's a, a, a quote by, by Louis Armstrong that even before I, I knew it, I lived it, which is there are, there are a lot of different genres of music, but there are only two types of music. There's good music and there's bad music. Okay. So if someone plays me good rock music, I, I, I'll go, that's really good. Good country. That's really good. The fact that as a kid, I loved Motown and I loved reggae. That kind of got me into music. So that was the music that I felt. But it was just that when I was feeling down, I put on a record and it would change my mood. When I was feeling up, I put on a record and it would express my mood. I'd hear a piece of music, even the most inappropriate or unexpected place. And it would make me want to dance. It would make me want to sing along. Music made me feel something. There are lots of things. I, I loved reading. I loved literature. I loved going to the cinema and watching movies. I loved history. I loved the stuff I learned at school. That made me think something. Music made me feel something. And in me, I just had an overwhelming desire. My greatest desire wasn't to be famous. My greatest desire was was to make one song, just one in my life that made somebody feel the way music made me feel. So let's talk about getting to that one song because it was a seminal moment and I can remember it well because I was a part of a scene that embraced what David Grant and Lynx were doing because it was new, it was exciting, it was fresh. But you had to have an entry point as a singer and as an artist. What was that moment where you felt, okay, I've got, I've, I've got this piece of music. I found the companion that's, that's going to help me on this journey. How do you then move it to think I can actually have a career? I can have the start of a career in this business. Was there a particular moment where you felt, this is it, I'm knocking at the door? Yeah, there was a moment, but the moments leading up to it were as important and as essential as the moment itself. And I think that that's one of the things that on reflection, I believe I've learned that every step in the right direction is a step towards the destination. And every step towards the destination is as valuable as reaching the destination. Every mile of the journey equips you for the destination. 
So I didn't know anything about the music business. I didn't know anybody in the music business. So I trained as a journalist. Having trained as a journalist and not being a particularly good journalist, I went and then applied for a job at Island Records in the press office. While I was in the press office, I started to understand the music business. There was a a group at Island at the time called High Tension. And they were produced by a guy called Alex Sadkin. And Alex Sadkin had just finished producing Exodus by Bob Marley and the Wailers the year before. Now, I was obviously working at Ireland. And in my lunchtime, I went down to the studio for a few days and met Alex Sadkin and talked to him and asked him if I could come in and sit at the back of the room and say nothing. So every day for maybe three months, every lunchtime, uh, High Tension were in the island studios making their record, which is in the same building as the offices. And I would skip lunch every day to sit at the back of the studio so that I could begin to understand how you made records. Because I'd made demos up to then that sounded horrible. And I realized that actually I didn't know any record producers and I didn't know how you made a record. So that was my school. I sat there and I learned through watching people who knew what they were doing, do it. Secondly, there was a guy there called Eon Irving. He worked in the uh, the mailroom at the time because they used to send out records to DJs and send out press releases. And every day Eon and I would talk and he wanted to be a DJ. That was his thing. And I wanted to be a singer. That was my thing. And, you know, when you find somebody who who sparks you because they're at the same stage of the journey as you and they've got all the energy and drive and enthusiasm that you've got, that everybody who doesn't have is saying, get off that crazy dream. It's never going to work. It's stupid. Do something sensible. But here's a guy who was dreaming like a fool, just like I was. And and we would kind of encourage each other's dreams, you know. And that's why I encourage younger people now. I say, you know, if you're going to dream, don't dream of the possible or the probable or the likely. Dream like a fool. So, you know, Eon was really important at that part of the journey. But more important than that, there was a guy there who was working, who was sort of like... Chris Blackwell was the owner of Island Records. Chris Blackwell's voice on earth, if you like, because he was he was somewhere else like Jamaica or America or wherever. His voice in London was a guy called Erskine Thompson. And Erskine Thompson, he didn't so much take me under his wing as mentor me. He kind of instructed me. He'd say, that's a bad idea. That why are you doing that? He'd always be saying, why are you doing that? To me, and it was great because he wouldn't say that's good, that's bad. It's like justify it, explain it. What's the purpose of it? Is it worth doing it? What What's the end result you've got in mind? Erskine made me think. And he made me think about the fact that music wasn't just vibe. The music business wasn't just vibe. If you can't walk into a room and justify an action, don't do it. So what happens when you go back home and you tell you've got a, a great job at Island Records in the press department, there's clearly a career as a, potentially a journalist or a press officer, and you tell your grandmother and your mother, you know what, that's great, but I'm going to do this. Because as children of immigrants, where having a good job and a career is the most important thing I know what that kind of pushback would have been. So I'm really interested to kind of hear the kind of reaction you'd have got from from the Grant family at that particular time. Well, my mum had just married my stepdad and gone to Jamaica. So there was one sort of like level 
of objection and obstruction that was out of the way because <laughs> I knew my mum would have gone mad. But the, And the reason she would have gone mad, I completely understand, is that there was finally for me laid out before me a potential career path, a potential path to self-advancement. I do think that one of the things that, that happens when you are a poor and you're from a, a poor background, financially poor, and you are new to a country, which mum was obviously because she immigrated from Jamaica and I was because I immigrated from Jamaica, is that the idea of working for yourself, the idea of being self-determining isn't one that's attractive, appealing or advised because there are so many barriers. There are so many obstructions. There are so many people who say, you can't do that. We won't let you in. The world is full of gatekeepers and every every area, every field of endeavour has gatekeepers who are invested in pe keeping people that don't look like them or aren't from their background out of the game. You can't enter the gate to even get in the game. You could be like Messi, Ronaldo and Pele and Maradona rolled into one, but you can't get into the game because the gatekeepers stop you. So when finally, when finally you're in a place where it's laid out, if you're good enough, there's a chance you may get the promotion. If you stick at it long enough, there's a chance you'll get a pay rise. And you say, no, I'm abandoning all this to do something that's totally speculative. Well, my grandmother, she said, son, because she used to call me son. She goes, son, if that is what you want to do, I will support you. But, you know, I can't support you financially because I'm a pensioner. You're going to have to find something to do. So <laughs> I left my job at Island Records. By then, I had run into Sketch and a guy called Bert Salvari, whose brother Steve Salvari was in a band called Central Line. Bert played guitar. Bert introduced me to Sketch, who played bass. We started a band together and called the band Lynx. Mel Gaynor, the drummer, was in our band. And it was just like, I got this hot four piece. We're going to be stars. Now, if I leave Ireland by September, I'd have been there for a year. I'm going to be having hit records by Christmas. And hey, I got this guy Erskine, my mentor, and he's playing Chris Blackwell, the records. Now, what happened was that Erskine took it to A&R and A&R said no. And Chris Blackwell didn't even hear the records until much later. And Chris Blackwell was like, who didn't sign this? <laughs> Which was the point I was going to come on to. Your, your, your reference to gatekeepers and not being allowed in is really, really interesting because your line was released independently. If I remember rightly, your line was the track. Yep, on Aves was it? Or yeah, that's an incredible memory you've got there. That was forty years ago, and you remember. I'll explain what happened. I'll explain the story leading up to this. Okay, we had tried to get a record deal everywhere, and nobody was interested. We were with management, the people who ran an equipment hire and rehearsal room called Easy Hire in Islington, where big bands used to go and rehearse. I remember sitting at the back of a room while Billy Cobham was there with his band preparing to do a UK tour. I watched Billy Cobham playing drums and I was like, wow, these guys are amazing. And Thin Lizzy and, you know, like um, Def Leppard and The Jam and people like that. You, you'd get to kind of meet them in the rehearsal room. And they gave us this room at the back, which is, we were the poor boys. I was talking to somebody who knew us then, said we were the, we were the poor boys of Easy Hire. 
There was what was a storeroom, but it had holes in the ceiling, which when it rained, Mel had to pull his drum kit into the corner and we had to take everything electric into another corner to stay in the dry. And we'd be gathered around a paraffin heater and we did not have the resources to tour. Now, every band at that time on the scene, there was obviously Light of the World, High Tension, Central Line, um, Eye Level, uh, you know, there, there, were, um, there were other bands, uh, Level 42, they were all playing live. We didn't have the resources or the kit to play live. So what we would do is five days a week, we would sit in that rehearsal room. I'd do a night security job at Harvey Nichols. I'd go there from six at night till six in the morning. I'd come home. I'd sleep till 9.30. I'd get up after three hours sleep. I'd go and rehearse from 10 till four, go home, eat, go and do my night security job. The point is, no, I'm not, I'm, I'm not even pointing to myself and saying, you know, isn't that exceptional? What I am saying is that I'm a great believer that a winner is somebody who will do the things they hate in order to gain the things they love. And if that means you don't sleep and you work so that you can keep food on the table and keep the electricity on so that you can pursue your dream, you do it. And if you don't do it, then you're not worthy of it. So once you've released your line independently, the record begins to pick up some traction. I mean, a massive record in the clubs at the time. What happens next to you? Because there's that moment where suddenly that dream of having a hit record after leaving Ireland in September and having it in December is not quite there, but it's definitely on the horizon. What happens once you have that attention on you and you think, this career that I want is actually now within my grasp. The people are paying me attention. Okay, let me tell you the build-up to it. The build-up to it was great. So we wrote your line. You're lying. We've been writing together for two years. We wrote your line and we thought, this is it. This is the song. It's like, you know, when you know, I know that you have, you have been part of like signing acts, promoting acts, managing big acts, managing big writers. Every now and again, you just hear a song and you'll go, that's it. That's the one. There's something about this. So um, we didn't have the money to record it. So we hawked it to publishers. And there's one particular publisher who'd been listening to our music for two years and going, um, no, no, that, not that song, but come back. This is what you need to do with this song. And actually advising us and paying, paying some attention to it. And he was a guy called Brian Freshwater and he was at um, Screen Gems Music. So we took him your lying in its roughest, roughest, put a tape recorder in the middle of a room and just play and sing around the tape recorder. And he said, that's a hit. And I said, do you know anybody who might invest in it? Is there any record company that might give us the money to record it? And he got back to us the next day and he said, right, I've got this new job, a small independent German publishing company called Aves Music. And I've gone and spoken to the MD and we'll give you a thousand pounds to record it. So we took a thousand pounds to record it and, and press a thousand copies of it. And we did that. And then he took it to record companies who all said no. And so I decided, being the hustler that I was, this is the closest I've ever got. This is the first thing I've ever had on vinyl. This is the first time I can ever hold something that says links. And it's a record that I'm on. I know what I'm going to do. I've got a thousand of these suckers. We've got to get our money back. So I decided I would walk around record shops. So I went to a place called City Sounds in Holborn. And there behind it, this is where like, you know, you just intersection with people and people call it luck. I don't believe in luck. 
I believe that people are blessed with opportunity. And I think that what people called luck is an intersection in the road where preparation meets opportunity. Nobody that I have ever known has gotten a big break, blown it and been called lucky. Luck isn't what happens when you get the chance. Luck is how prepared you are to take the chance. We walked into a shop and there's a guy who just started at the shop who went on to become one of the greatest A&R men in the music business for a while. A guy called Mick Clark, who was in a job as a record shop assistant who heard your lying and said, how many have you got? And I had a box of 25. I said, I got 25. He said, no, how many have you pressed? I said, a thousand. He said, how many have you got left? I said, well, I sold a box to a shop in Soho called Record Shack. I've got 975 copies. He said, give me a minute. He went back, spoke to the owner of the shop, came back and said, we'll buy them. I said, you want all 25? He said, no, we want all 975. We want to be the only place where people can get this record. So that in an instant, we'd made back the money because this guy who turned out to have golden ears and later signed Soul to Soul when nobody else wanted them, he happened to be in the shop that day. And and so the very next weekend, he'd given it to a radio, a, a DJ called Graham Cantor, who'd gone on to Robbie Vincent's show. And Robbie said, what are your three new tracks? And he played Casanova, one other track that was like blowing up in the clubs. And he said, and here is a new track and it's British and it's by a band you've never heard of called Lynx and it's called You're Lying. Now it just happened that it was the day of my 24th birthday. I woke up, turned on the Robbie Vincent show on a Saturday morning like I always did. And within 10 minutes, I heard You're Lying. I jumped out of bed. It's pre-mobile phones or I would have been on texting everybody. I was running around my bedroom screaming, going, Gran, Gran, listen to this. And she came up the stairs thinking that, like, you know, we had mice or something. And she was like, what's wrong? What's wrong? I said, listen to this. And she heard it and she said, but that's you. I said, yeah. She said, I'm the radio. I said, yeah. And then she started screaming. It was like a moment I will never, ever, ever forget. So you you sell 975 copies and then you sign to Chrysalis Records. Yeah. And interestingly enough, on the Monday after it was played on Robbie Vincent's show, all the record companies that had said no, including EMI, where the guy who was the head of A&R, who had known Brian and worked with him, whose PA was Brian's girlfriend. So she'd spoken so highly of this record. He listened to it on a cassette. After a minute, opened the cassette player, said, why do people send me this crap? Opened his window and threw the cassette out of his window into Manchester Square. He was on the phone on Monday morning saying, I'd really be interested in signing your band. <laughs> so, of course, we didn't go to any of those. We, we went to Chrysalis because they were one company we'd never been with because they don't, well, as far as we were concerned, they only did rock and two-tone. Um, Brian had never been there and they loved the record. So we went there and we signed to them because they also were one of the few companies that didn't have a black music department. Every company had what they called a black music department, which was a, a very long way to say ghetto, where you would get like half the budget, you would get half the attention. And if you were lucky, they'd press up some 12 inch copies of your record and see how it went. And you know, you had companies with black music divisions releasing 
great records, like classic records that weren't really getting anywhere because the company wasn't putting the weight of the company behind it. As far as Christmas was concerned, they had to treat us exactly the same way they were treating Blondie or The Specials or Spandau Ballet because they didn't know any other way. And that was perfect for us. And that was one of the things I really wanted to explore with you because the one thing that's been labelled at record companies throughout the past 35, 40 years has been they've never afforded the rights or the same resource to black artists that they have to their white counterparts. And I'm re- it's really interesting that you say that that wasn't something that you felt applied to you because at that point in your career when you signed to Chrysalis, you've done this independently, you've controlled your career to a point where people are interested and you're now signed to a label that specialises in anything other until that point, black music, but you have Spandau Ballet and you have links. So do you actually feel that you were treated at that point as an equal to a Spandau Ballet, that you've got the same resources, that you that you had control of your career and that you were able to kind of you, you listen to at that point in the same way that your white counterparts were? At that stage, I would say that we absolutely did have the same resources, simply because, as I said, with with Chrysalis, they didn't know another way. They didn't have grades of priority with regard to an artist that was based on the style of the music or the colour of the skin, the race of the artist. It was just like, if we're investing in this, we need a return on our investment. So we're going to promote links as hard as we're going to promote Blondie, we're going to promote Lynx as hard as we're going to promote Spandau because that's the only way we're going to get our money back. And they were also so open. I remember a meeting with Doug Darcy, who at the time was the MD of the record label. Um, Doug Darcy and Erskine Thompson, Brian Freshwater, who was our manager then. Erskine was doing our promotion on Your Lying, Sketch and I. And, uh, and me saying, you know, we, we, we want to do a 12-inch remix and Doug saying, what's that? <laughs> and Erskine explained to him what a 12-inch was, what a remix was, how you put the same catalogue number on, and it goes to the sales of it. And he said, so what you're saying is, hold on a minute, so people who've bought the single version will actually buy the record again if it's a remix? Okay, yes, because the remix is different. So what? Hold on. It's the same song, Yes. It's a different version of the same song, kind of. <laughs> okay, let's do it. And, you know, where would you get that? If we'd have been at Warner's or at, at CBS as it was, then of course we wouldn't have got that because people in the black music division, A, they would have known that, and B, they would have known their budgets and their budgets would have been really small. And if you did a 12-inch, what are you going to be doing a remix for? You're not an American act. We have a budget for an American act that's smaller than white American act. We have a budget for black British acts that's smaller than white British acts, which is smaller than American acts. And it's just like you get into this whole thing where it doesn't matter how creative your ideas are. You're not going to get the idea through. At Chrysalis, they were a real music company. And and they they allowed us in some part, certainly at the early stages, they allowed us to take the lead because we were on the scene. So we knew what they didn't know. And they were comfortable saying, we don't know. Tell us. So once you've gone through that that initial period and you know you've you've had success, how do you think of yourself in terms of of an act? Are you a black act or are you just another band that are out there trying to have hits? Because 
that the, the labelling has always been something that black acts or have, have struggled with in terms of how they're segregated musically and where the music's played and how it's promoted. So were you actively thinking, you know what, we're just going to make great music as opposed to we're going to make something that is black music? No, that's that's a very interesting question because as far as we were concerned, there was there was a, a, a wonderful creative tension within within Links, uh, within Sketch and I by that stage, but the guitarist who co-wrote your line with us had left. So it was just me and Sketch. And we were comfortable with that because we looked and we said, well, you know, we're not alone. You know, we loved Steely Dan. And Steely Dan, there were two of them, and they were bringing the musicians they needed to make the record they needed to make. We loved the Brothers Johnson, and the Brothers Johnson had a hot band, but I'd already read an interview with Quincy Jones where he was saying, you know, so Lewis Johnson said, can we have our keyboard player on our record? And Quincy's response was, if he's better than Herbie Hancock, because the fact (laughs) and of course he wasn't, because nobody was. But the fact of the matter is, there was a precedent for there being two people heading a band bringing in the musicians that they needed to make the record and then those musicians becoming part of the band, but the two people being the core. So Sketch and I were really totally comfortable with that. What we felt we were, when Your Lying came out, Your Lying made the top 20 in the in the US R&B charts. It was on Soul Train. It was like, there were so many ambitions that I had that were fulfilled with that one record. But what we felt we were, were commentators of and representatives of a scene that existed in this country. It was very specific. We didn't see ourselves as competing with Adam and the Ants and Shaking Stevens and whatever. We saw ourselves as musical representatives. In fact, we had a motto that we would often say to one another as a reminder, which is we look at the clubs that we would go to, that we would dance in. We listen to the records that we would buy, that they were playing in those clubs. And our motto was, we are you. And that is exactly how we actually felt. And then we released a track called Rise and Shine. Now we got some of the people who were in the clubs in on Rise and Shine. It was like Capital Radio's record of the week. It was on the Radio 1 A-list and it wasn't a hit. And it suddenly occurred to me that perhaps We Are You applied to me, but not to you. (laughs) (laughs) It was like, it's like, hold on a minute, hold on a minute, hold on a minute. David, you see yourselves as representative of this group of people. And that may actually be right. However, you need to spread your wings a little wider. You know, people talk about marketing now in a way they didn't then, where we have a core demographic and our idea is, you know, certainly in music and and in all marketing, the idea is to feed your core whilst at the time embracing people who aren't your core. When Your Lion came out, we were only interested in making a record that could get us a record deal. When Rise and Shine came out, we were only interested in representing our demographic, which is our people, you know, the We Are You people, the club people, the funkers, the funketeers, the people who were out there buying these great American records and buying great British records by people like Light of the World and High Tension. We were only interested in representing them. After the failure of Rise and Shine we were interested in representing us. And that's where intuition came in. Because intuition started with a big row. Now, 
intuition started with a row because Sketch had an opinion and I had an opinion. Sketch was right. Let me tell you why. I was saying intuition, it's not, it's not funky enough. And he said, we could oh, listen to this bass line. And he came up with a different bass line. I went, that's, that's it. That's funky. That's right. I love that bass line. Great. And all we had was intuition. We didn't have anything else. Just intuition. And then I wrote the rest. We had that. And Sketch said, we're Caribbean. Our background is Caribbean. I got this idea that we have a steel pan on this. And I was like, you are having a laugh. We're a funk group. We're not a calypso group. And it was like, you know, when you're kids, you're kids and you go to a dance and you go to a party and your parents are having a party or your neighbours are having a party. What were you dancing to? And I was like, I was dancing to Bluebeat and Scar and Reggae. And he says, exactly. And let's do something that reflects where we come from as well as where we are. And I was like, Nah, never going to work. Never going to work. And he said, look, let's go in the studio and try it. I said, okay, we'll try it. But I want you to know, I am prepared to try it for as long as it takes for you to realise it's never going to work. So we went in and we tried it and it was magic. Sketch said, I've got this line. This line should go, bam, 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 bam. And as soon as it was on there, I was like, yeah, yeah, it's, it's all over. What a great idea. And Sketch is looking at me like, what do you mean, what a great idea? Great idea, man. This is so fresh. This is so original. It's like, you hate the idea. No, no, it's a great it's idea. Great. <laughs> I was always open to this idea. A complete lie, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what they say? Every hit has a thousand fathers and every flop, flop is an orphan. When you've had hits and you've got a core audience... There's clearly a moment where you begin to drift away from from that bass and you become a pop act because the music's popular. I mean, just purely by definition, you're reaching a wider audience. People are coming to you that would not have come to you before. One of the things that has always been labelled, certainly in the 80s, 90s, early 2000s, were once black acts or acts of colour had hits, a lot of them were deemed not black enough or they were accused of having forgotten their roots. Do you think that's fair? I don't think it's fair, but I think it's entirely understandable. I think it's understandable because when you when you are disenfranchised, you cling to whatever belongs to you. When that thing that you're clinging to is an artist, whether it's a group or a solo artist, you feel they belong to you, they're part of you, they're from where you're from, they're expressing what you want to express. You also got to remember, I think what's one of the things that hopefully has changed is that back in those days, every successful black person or every black person who had profile was seen as a representative of every black person. You know, you go, I'm feeling good today because that guy that looks like me was on top of the pops last night, or that guy that looks like me was on TV reading the news. So that guy that looks like me is making everybody laugh, not just black people, but black people and white people. They're representative of me. I have a face. I have a presence. And the reason I have a presence is because that person is giving me that presence. Now, I was the guy who, like many funketeers of the time, 
I would love a record that when it got in the charts, I'd love it a little less because everybody had it then. When it belongs to everybody, it, 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 I'm not interested. I'm only interested when it belongs to me and a select group. It's connoisseurs. It's like suddenly it's gone from being sort of like connoisseur cordon bleu to fish and chips. And when it's fish and chips and everybody can get it, I'm not interested. All right. So I completely understood that because I was that person prior to being the person who was firstly the beneficiary of the support and then the victim of the abandonment. I was that person. So I understood it and I knew I knew where it was going. So I also knew that there would come a point where we would have to spread. Now, I don't think when I look at the career of some of the black artists now, I don't think that that imperative or that drive is anywhere near as strong. I mean, it may still be there, but I think it's it's lesser. And I think the reason it's lesser is because when you've got one in, one out, that one that's in has to represent everything. Yeah. When there are half a dozen or there are 10 people who are big, when it's Chip and Stormzy and Dave, you know, you tell me a time when there were like three, four, five black acts back in the 80s who were all big in the charts at the same time. Then you have a spread. You go, I don't like links anymore. They're too commercial. So I'll listen to Central Line. I don't like Light of the World anymore. They're too frenetic. So I'll listen to whoever else. We didn't have that in those days. How much responsibility did you feel then at that point in terms of representation as a face out there? I felt a huge responsibility. You know, something struck me, Adrian, but it only struck me 20 years later. It only struck me when 9-11 happened. And I know that this may seem an absolutely bizarre and potentially frivolous comparison, but it isn't if you work through what I'm saying. But I would see Muslims, um, representatives of the Muslim community, coming on the news to talk about it and being asked to apologise for something that they had no part in. And it suddenly struck me, I'd never seen a white doctor being asked to apologise for the crimes of Harold Shipman. I'd never seen a white person being asked to apologise for the crimes of white supremacists. I'd never seen that. But suddenly I realised that that actually, when one of us rose up, we were suddenly responsible for all of us, or made to feel responsible. Whether people chose to take on that responsibility or not was their choice. And I had perhaps chosen to accept that I was responsible for stuff that I wasn't responsible for, responsible for people's reactions that I wasn't responsible for, responsible for making music for people that I didn't even know, that I should just be making what came out of my heart. But I think that at the point that you think I now have a market to accommodate, it's like saying I have to second guess what these people who like what I did before are going to want next. And the thing is, they probably liked what I did before because it was authentic and it was authentic because it was coming out of me. And the minute you start second guessing, you lose your authenticity. So do you believe that there was that moment where David Grant, the the kid who had a dream, wanted to make a particular kind of music, got lost in the hit machine? Completely. And I'll I'll tell you why. Because... There are two types of people in the world and there are, there, are, there are two types of drives in the world. You are either a two person or a from person. And let me explain what that means. You either, the orientation of your life is either driven by what you're going to. 
what your dreams, your aspirations, your hopes, your desires, your objectives are, or they're driven by what you're running from. I want to get away from obscurity. I want to get away from poverty. I want to get away from insignificance. I want to get away from failure. When we started, everything was two. The whole world was before us. Suddenly, after a couple of years, two, three years of doing this, you have something. You have something to lose. And I went from being a two person to being a from person. I want to keep running away from where I came. I don't want to go back to failure. I don't want to go back to obscurity. I don't want to go back to penury and not having enough. I don't want to go. I don't want to be that person who people go, didn't you used to be David Grant? And actually, that's when I became part of the machine, when it was like, what do I need to do to hold on to what I've got rather than what do I need to do to keep moving forward to what I want? So what was the difference between David Grant in Lynx and David Grant, David Grant, the solo artist? Because they're two very distinct characters, two very different type brands of music. From the outside looking in, and I was a part of that because you and I spent many hours going to PAs. Definitely yeah. a man that felt at the time, and I may be wrong about this, trying to kind of maintain a grip on what was going on. Did you feel that you were in full control of what you wanted to do musically, creatively, and in terms of your career path? Or was that you kind of going, I'm now looking from, not going to? Absolutely. Um, and I think that, that abs- you you spent many, many hours with me driving from you know one event to another in those days. So you would have a really sharp recollection, not from the outside, but from the inside of what what I was like. I felt as though I had lost connection to my original drivers. My original drivers were the music that I loved and the possibility to, in some small way, represent a moment. Because each, each scene is a moment. It's a moment in time. It's a snapshot. It's a vignette of people, of attitudes. And I've become so absorbed in the mechanics of maintaining my career, the the touring, the promotion, the going from one place to another, you know, having to have an opinion on music that I didn't really, I shouldn't really have had an opinion on because the only music I should really have had an opinion on is my own, that I kind of lost a little bit of connection with what I was about. And the scene was changing. You know, there were suddenly B-boys, there was suddenly much more electronic music. House was just on the verge of beginning to emerge and starting to be played in the clubs. Do I embrace that? Is it a betrayal of my funk roots and that when you don't know anymore what drives you you don't know who you are and when you don't know who you are you end up asking people who know you metaphorically who am I what should I be doing I'm Adrian Sykes. Thanks for listening to Did You Know, a Downstreet production. Thanks to David for sharing his story. And to my partner in crime and true pioneer, Danny D. Thanks also to Sean Springer, our production team of Cass Denton and Lanique Swartz, and to Ella Ruby on the socials. Our theme tune is composed by Vega Brothers. 
honourable mentions to Dave Roberts and Tim Ingham at MBW for their support. You'll soon be able to apply to be mentored by the guests of the Did You Know podcast. Keep listening for further information. Did You Know is available wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure that you subscribe to never miss an episode. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star review. And look out for part two of our conversation with David Grant with the continuation of his story and the transition he successfully made into other areas of the music business. This was Did You Know? Until the next time.